Um, the comment was made, this is a good story. Um, Charles Dickens, who wrote some stories, he reckons it is the finest short story ever written. Uh, I wouldn't know, I don't read short stories, but that's uh, a high praise. It is an extraordinary story. Problem is, for many of us, we're just kind of so used to it. We've been brought up on it, some of us, and we just uh, don't get the wonder of it. Hopefully, God will help us to see. Uh, so let me lead in prayer. Father, we do ask for a small miracle that this story that we kind of know so well um, would be made an instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit, that we would catch a fresh hearing of what Jesus is saying to us through it, and that we would see the truths that it uh, can bring to us, that our hearts would be fed and our souls would be full of joy because of what we see. So, Lord, for his sake we pray, may your spirit be at work. Amen. Well, I think this is this is an entirely revolutionary story at the end, you know, time permitting. Uh, uh, there's a Buddhist story that is quite similar to this, but completely different. Uh, but it's got some of the ideas. We'll come to that. It, this is a, um, a story that in terms of human religion, uh, completely, totally subverts everything. At one level, of course, Islam and Buddhism and these things are vastly different, almost incomparably different. They come from different universes. But at a deep structural level, and I've, I've been working on this for some years, I'm pretty sure it's true, at a deep structural level, all the religions of the world are the same, except gospel Christianity, which it travels in the opposite direction. So if you've studied religious studies at school or at uni, the fundamental assumption is mistaken, that you just, you know, you like looking at a kangaroo and a wallaby. They're a bit different, but they're pretty much the same. Well, let's have a look. Um, I... I read this uh, account of a, an, an English clergyman who'd been invited to speak at a large Indian festival of gospel teaching, like, a, like the Katoomba Convention or something but there, but you know, vastly more people. And he's speaking to a translator. And he starts off with this sentence to this. The beatific familiarity of this passage, traditionally appointed to be read on Quinquagesima Sunday, must not blind us to its sublime profundity. The translator looked at him and then said in Hindi, or whatever language it was, up till this point the speaker has said nothing worth hearing. When he does, I will let you know. <laughs> Which I think is brilliant. Uh, this may be beatifically familiar to you, um, but I do hope you know, you'll get to hear it for the, as it were, the first time. It's a very dangerous story. I told this story once many years ago when I had the honour of working with, with a guy called John Chapman. I went to this little church in Concord and, and it was, it was a, a, quite a different talk to this. But a woman came out, um, you know, well-dressed, obviously very much at home in this church, and said, I'm very glad the children weren't here this morning for this sermon. I said, why? She said, because it's, it's just, it was just ridiculous what you were saying and it's damaging. And I thought... What a tragedy. Here's a woman who, you know, the church, she was very much at home in the church, but did not have the faintest clue about Christianity. And when she heard it put moderately clearly, she thought it was just a dangerously uh, unhelpful story. But it is a bit like that. So let's look firstly at uh, the story, well known. It's the third of three about lost things. Um, one out of a hundred, one out of ten one out of two, and the celebration uh, when the thing is found. 
So let's, I'll just assume that you've, you've got your Bible in front of you. It's in the booklet there. Firstly, the rejecter. Um, father with two sons, obviously a wealthy man. One of his sons comes and says, Father, give me. Now this is the guy's anthem. Right? Give me. Give me my share of the estate. So the man divided his property between them and then the son who got that money nicked off. Now it's very possible for us to um, sympathise quite wrongly, even as Christians, with both the son, the first son, and with the second son. The first son, you, we, we just think, oh, he must, there must have been a repressive sort of father and he needed some space. No, 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 no. Um, the father is obviously a generous-hearted man, perhaps too generous, some might think. Um, but the essence of this young man is give me. And at the end, when he's nearly starving to death, nobody would give him anything. And so he goes to his dad and says, oh, you know, look, eventually you're going to die. And um, I'm going to get some of the estate. Do I have to wait till you die? Well, you're, you're like a plug, and I want to pull the plug out and get the benefit of, of all that. And it, it's mildly offensive in our culture, I think, um, to do it. I remember my mother offered me at one stage a loan of money to buy a house um, some years ago when houses were slightly more sensibly priced than now. I, I couldn't bear to do it, partly because of this story. I thought, I don't want to... Think of my mother as a source of money just held up by her bleeding good health because um, she lived into her 90s. <clears throat> but this son, as some of you will know this, this, you may have heard this, there's a man called Kenneth Bailey. I'm going to mention him twice. And Kenneth Bailey grew up in the Middle East, a missionary family, went back to the United States to do his PhD and then went back to the Middle East. And what he would do was he would tell the stories of Jesus to various cultural groups like Bedouins and people like that, because there are groups scattered around the Middle East that really are living in pretty much unchanged situations. Society just gone on and on. Now there are parts of the Middle East that are just like Sydney, only warmer. But um, So he would tell the stories and ask them what they heard. And so when they heard this story, he talked about this first part. And he was almost universally told, no, this is a ridiculous story. No son would ever go to his father and ask for his inheritance before he died. It just couldn't happen. But when he told it to many, 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 many villages and groups, he found two, there were two stories where they, they yeah, we've seen that. Uh, with one, the, the son was um, asked, asked for his dad's inheritance, his inheritance before his dad died. He, his father took his son to the village elders, told what had happened. This, the a village elders held him down and beat him. And then he was exiled from the village forever. He was never to come back. It was such. What, what Jesus has done with this man is he has told us in a way that in that culture is the worst possible thing this son could ever do. The worst insult to his father. The other village um, that had this recollection that some time back a, a son had done that. Soon after that his father died and the mother of the boy, the wife of the man who died, said at the funeral... My husband died the day that his son asked for his inheritance. I mean, he didn't physically die, but he just he said that was the end of him because it was such a hurtful insult. He's saying, I just wish you were dead. I don't want to know you. I don't want to go and make it on my own because he could have left and done that. But I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Now, that is about as good a description of sin as you're ever going to find, isn't it? The problem is not atheism. In fact, most atheists are not atheists when you push them. Uh, I've, again and again, I've been disappointed with atheists. 
I've organised I've organised debates with them, and I've I used to go fishing with a friend who said he was an atheist. And then as we talked, he's not an atheist at all. It's just cool to be an atheist. You know, right? um, but it's not atheism is the problem. The problem in Australia is ignortheism, where we just don't want God in our. This is this is why when I became an atheist as a sort of about sort of sixteen year old, it was an atheism of convenience. I didn't want there to be a God. Because I didn't, I just saw God as a combination of my father, teachers, and police, and all of those people were utter nuisances to me, right? And I just didn't want a cosmic one, so I just because I had such a dark, sinful, wicked, evil view of God. Um, but this is this boy. This is the classic picture of sin. It says, "I want your stuff, God, but I don't want you." This is so it's, we just want to ignore God. We want to have all the blessings, and this is why the the, the picture of hell. Uh, the removal of God himself and all his blessings is, is a hell that is horrifying. That you, you, when I was an atheist, you know, I had a great life because of all the stuff God gave me. You know, a family that loved me. Massive wealth, um, worldwide wise. Um, massive potential. Uh, good friends, good music. All different sorts of pleasure, good food. All comes from the hand of God. Give me. He wants the stuff from God, but he doesn't want God. As soon as he gets the stuff, his father is ridiculously generous, gives it to him, then he nicks off and prances around in a distant country with his phony independence. You know, if, if you want to live without God, well, you can't, can you? Because even the brain that says, oh, I don't believe there's a God, right, is a brain God gave you. Um, but he, he, he doesn't want the father. It's very obvious he's not interested. And then he finishes up. This is a Jewish story told by a Jewish man to a Jewish audience. He finishes up feeding pigs. Now, you may think they're, they're dirty animals, pigs, but the, the Jewish folk, as, as Muslims are, Muslims are, it's even more, my experience with, with Muslims, their re revulsion of pigs is stronger than that of Jews. It's a, it's a visceral. Oof. But Jews, the idea of a good Jewish boy runs away from the promised land, ends up, Envying what the pigs were eating, that is, that is, it's a bit like you had a son who ran away from home and he rang you up and you said, how are you going? He says, okay, I've got a new job. What are you doing? I'm a male prostitute. You go, oh my goodness. Right? Uh, it would be horror. And this is what it would be like for this good Jewish boy to finish up in a distant land envying the pigs. And thank God it finishes badly for him. For many of us, we do need to hit rock bottom and my goodness, it hurts like anything. But um, many people experience the fact that they don't turn and face God for the help that they need until they hit rock bottom. This kid hits rock bottom. He's in the process of dying. He's starving. So he's the, he's the first rejector. There's a second rejector, as you know, in this story of the father. And then he, let's look at how he ends up returning. Look at verse um, 17. It's got this, it's translated, when he came to his senses, and it's literally when he came to himself, it's, the, it's a word used of mental illness. We, we have an expression that we don't use often in English where he say he was beside himself, which is a weird thing. What do you mean he was beside? How can you be beside yourself? It's the idea that you're so out of control and you're doing insane things. It's like you're not yourself. And he came to himself. It's actually it, it's, so it's picturing his sin as almost like a mental illness, and it is uh, at the deepest level. It, it's just an insane way to behave in God's world. But he comes to himself and he has a little speech. He thinks, hang on, how many of my father's, this is in verse 17, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? 
And he knew that his father was a generous employer. He didn't overwork his servants. He, you know, they had more food than they needed. And he said, here I am starving to death. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father. And I'll confess that I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your kid. He knows he cannot possibly come back to, to the family home and have his bedroom back. Right? Now, this trouble for us is our, our family structures are not as rigid and as hierarchical as they were in that culture. And also, this parable has so affected our culture that we can hardly hear it properly because we're so committed to forgiveness and mercy because of the impact of Jesus and this sort of story. But he knows he can never, ever become a son again. The best he's hoping for is that his old man, who he knows is a soft touch, might let him work as a servant. So with that hope, he heads off home. So he's starving. He's been working amongst the pigs. He's not looking his best. He left on a, you know, on a GT camel and he's trudging his way home. And then, as you heard, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Now, why does the father see him when he's a long way off? Why, why does he do that? Um, is that coincidence? Well, no, if you look at the, the stories are about people looking for something that's lost. Right? The shepherd who goes looking for the lost sheep, the widow who's looking, the woman who's looking for that lost coin. The father sees him because he's looking for him. He's, he's looking down the road to see if there's any sign of him coming back. He's a long way off, trudging his way home. His father saw him and was, well, he had an experience like the Good Samaritan. Remember that I mentioned that this word only gets used of God or Jesus and the Good Samaritan. His heart is filled with compassion for him. Um, this is the point of the story. Then this is, this is shocking in the culture, I'll explain why. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, again, this is the only other time I mentioned this Kenneth Bailey guy. Kenneth Bailey uh, alerted me, I, you may have known this, but in that culture, and you can see it in the Arab culture still, grown men of stature never run. Slaves can run, children can run, but if you're a man of any stature, you never run. And if you see the oil sheiks, the way they walk, they really, they, really, they really walk as if they own the universe. And um, that, that's what a man, that's what the, the patriarch does. He never runs. This would have been the first time this boy ever saw his dad run. It's a different culture to ours. Right? This is the way cultures work. What the other culture does, that knows to be right, you know to be stupid. And they look at our culture and go, are you kidding? So, the, in fact, this, um, Kenneth Bailey tells the story of a church in Lebanon where they needed to replace an elder who died. So the, the board of elders met to say, who, who from the congregation will we get to be an elder? And they came down to two good men. And then one of the men in the group of elders said about one of them, he cannot be an elder. Why not? I have seen him run. Really? And that was it. The discussion was over. He's unfit for the job. Grown men of any stature never run. This father is filled with compassion and his gut is all muddled by his emotions and he runs out to this son. I imagine he started with his son, probably didn't even see him, had his head down. And suddenly this dad comes running to him, 
throws his arms around him, and the, 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 literally it says he kissed him repeatedly. He kissed him and kissed him. He smothers him in warmth and affection. Now remember, this son is a complete and utter jerk. To use an Australian technical term, he's a scumbag. And he's only coming back because it's death or maybe I can get a meal at home if I work. And the father can tell that by the way that he's walking home, by the clothes and the smell. He's, you know, he's, he's not waiting to hear, oh, how did it go, son? Right? He knows from the fact that he's back. Right? It's perfectly clear he's coming back in utter failure. It's death or home. But the father runs to him and covers him uh, in, in affection. And then the, the reception goes on. Uh, the father, the son then begins to give his speech. I hope you notice the difference between the speech that he planned to give. Did anyone notice the difference between the speech that he planned to give and the speech that he gave? Right? He doesn't get to finish it. Right? Because the father interrupts. So he begins his little rehearsed speech. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He was going to say, take me back as a servant. That's his best hope. He doesn't get to finish. Why not? Because the father cuts him off. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and get the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now, I want to suggest to you, this is, a, this is the second best picture of the heart of God you're going to see anywhere ever. Oh, no, when you see him, it might be better. Um, because the son, he doesn't, what he should do, if I was giving this father any advice, I'd say, look, let the boy, humble pie is a very good pie to eat. Right? He was arrogant, ruthlessly selfish, didn't give a damn about your reputation or about the family wealth. He just thought of himself, so me, 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 me. Would have got on well with a rich fool. I, me, my, that was all it was about. He's only come back to you because it's death or that. So he hasn't come back because he loves you. He's come back because he loves himself. But the father says, um, the father cuts him off and says about three things. The robe, the ring and the sandals. Again, we could miss those. The robe, a wealthy household would often have a robe kept specially apart for a, for a sort of a, a guest because in those days you didn't have a GPS and you didn't have a phone, etc. So if you were travelling and you got held up, you'd just finish up needing a place to stay. And in the Middle East, as in many other cultures, a real thing about hospitality both then and now. So you'd let him in. And if he was, say, royalty or someone, you know, of, of, you'd put this beautiful robe on him to indicate that he's an honoured guest. Uh, and he says, get that robe for the honoured guest. Put it on him over his smelly pig-infested clothing. Get the, the ring is the family signet ring. Get him the family signet ring. Get him sandals. Now, the way it worked in houses in those days is if you're a servant or a slave, you did not wear shoes. The only people who wore shoes in the home were the, was the family. So what the father is saying is, far from being taken back as a servant, he's saying he's back and he's, he's being welcomed as if he's a returning hero. This is the way you'd perhaps welcome someone back if they'd gone away to fight for the, the honour or the, the well-being of the family, this, rather than damaging it. This, the, the, re, the reception he's getting is ridiculous. Right? It, it, it's bad parenting, we would think. You know? He needs to 
show that he means it at least. Think, okay, maybe let him work, live amongst the servants and then if we see after a few months or years that he really means it, that he really has changed, then you maybe let him back. But it's instant. He doesn't even get to finish his little speech. It's beautiful. And Jesus saying, you want to know what my father is like? He's this guy. This is what God is like. He doesn't put him on probation. Right? Let's see how you go. He's back. There's a fattened calf that waits there for one thing, and that is to die, to be fed on. Right? He says, kill that. Get the, get the champagne out. Break out the music. We're having a party. It's a great day. It's beautiful. And I, you know, we, so we've mentioned a chap. Sorry if you don't know who he is. He's a dead bloke now. But um, he was a great preacher. And I remember being with him as we sort of critiqued these guys' sermons. We went away to some country estate and uh, caused pain to these young guys to help them get better. And at some stage, one of the guys had preached a sermon on this passage. And John was very dissatisfied with the sermon. And he began to describe the father, you know, this, this very highly emotional response from the father. And, and it was really interesting because John, I've heard John preach on this passage many times, but John began to cry. It was, it was extraordinary. He's, I'm thinking, because it is so beautiful that this is what God is like to really disgusting, selfish people who only repent for their own good. He's barely repented at all, really. It's just coming home rather than death. And this is what God is like. The only better place you see the heart of God is that man nailed up outside Jerusalem. We're seeing what God will pay to make this free forgiveness possible. It's costly. One silly man who I read on this some years ago suggests that Jesus in this story is the, is the fattened calf waiting to be slaughtered. I think that's a bit of a long stretch. But, but you know, the only purpose of the fattened calf is to be killed. And the purpose of Jesus was to die so that forgiveness could be justly and rightly given. It's beautiful, isn't it? This is what God is like. And this is the God who I tried to avoid. This is the God whose name I used as a swear word. It's disgraceful. So we've seen the rejecter, we've seen the repentance, we've seen the reception, we've seen the heart of God. And then we come to what is, in a sense, one of the other climaxes of the story that often, as you know, doesn't get touched. And that's the other son. This man's got two sons. And I suggest to you that they're both, they're both lost. This is the ugly face of religion. Jesus tells this story, we know, from Luke 15 where it begins. Now the tax collectors and sinners, like the first son, were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. All right, so you've got two groups of people who've met Jesus, out and out vile sinners who are gathering to Jesus to hear, and you've got these good men. I don't, I'm not saying that, but these are, these are men who really cared about doing the right thing by God and by their nation. And it's ugly. Because there are two ways to lose God, aren't there? At least two basic ways. One is self-centeredness, really obvious self-centeredness like the firstborn son. That was my kind of way. But the other way is self-righteousness, which the second son is. He thinks the father is damn lucky to have him. And he should be noticing how wonderful he is. And he has no respect for the father. Here is the father's... This is the best day in the father's life, as far as we can tell. All his dreams have come true. His son was dead. 
he's alive. He was lost and he's found. And so, so ignorant is this other son of what his father is really like that when he sees his father on his best day, this son rebukes his father. He says, pull yourself together. This is a disgraceful, immoral way for you to behave, to welcome people back like that. The champagne is flowing, the band is playing, the lamb is being eaten, and this guy is, won't go in. He's outside. And the story finishes with this, the, the self-righteous boy still outside. There's a party going on. and Because in the end, it's, it's functioning to invite the Pharisees in. And you'll know that they, you can be Pharisees at church, can't you? There can be people who are good people, honourable people, have been the backbone of the church sometimes, but actually think it's about, that's what it's about. It's about them earning and God being lucky to have them. And there's a slight resentment for these people who come into church late and noisy and rowdy and a little bit unwashed. This guy throws an ugly tantrum. Now, people can be sympathetic. I've heard a lot of Christian people be very sympathetic to this bloke. Well, I want to say, be careful of that because Jesus has no sympathy for him at all. Right? He is a self-righteous, judgmental jerk. Not just judgmental of, of his brother, who he won't even call his brother, this son of yours, he says. And the father wisely says, this brother of yours. Right? Uh, but he's judging God. And you'll have met people like that. They think it's disgustingly immoral, this sort of possibility of deathbed conversions. And they think they're so much more righteous than Christianity with this deathbed conversion. It's only because they know nothing about who they are. right? They just have no idea that we're all completely undeserving. They're like this bloke. But the father loves him, so he goes out to the, this kid. This, this father has no pride. He loves his kids. He wants them saved. He wants them with him no matter what their style of sin is. And the weird thing is, isn't it, you can be a Christian for a while and you know that when you started out as a Christian, you were like the first son. And after you've been in church for a while, you can end up becoming like the second son. I, I found this not so much in church, but with my family. I was a very unpleasant teenager. Actually, my father was unpleasant, but he grew up as time went on and proved. But um, I became a Christian, which did help remake the relationship. But one of my sisters was in this constant state of war with my father, I don't, you know, I don't know quite uh, the cause of it, um, uh, but well, now I, what you've heard of Joe Biden? I'm having a Joe Biden moment. I, I joke with people. I've got incipient Joe Biden syndrome. It's only incipient, right? But I'm uh, not going to keep talking about that because I frankly can't remember what it was. I'll remember it when I move on. Um, see, that's what happens when you get as old as I am sometimes. Um, right. The Father is like God. Have you heard the story of Christina and Maria? You may have heard it. It's a, it's a Max Licardo story, but it's one of the most beautiful stories, and it's about this. Uh, let me tell you briefly in case you've heard it before. Um, uh, Christina was a young woman, uh, the only child of a woman with, uh, where the man had left, and they were living in a village um, outside of Rio de Janeiro, and lots of people wanted to um, go out with Christina, but she was beautiful but not interested in these sort of second-rate 
options she, that she had. And she kept wanting to go to Rio. She wanted to go to Rio. She wanted to go to Rio. And her mother kept saying, don't go to Rio, don't go to Rio. It'll be deadly for you. Because she knew what happens if you go to a city like that and you've got no education and no contacts. Anyhow, she woke up one morning and Christina had gone. She left a note saying, I've gone to Rio. Um, so her mother got together all the money that she had, um, bought a bus ticket, a return bus ticket. And while she was waiting, she went into one of those little things that takes pictures of you and, and delivers sort of three pictures at a time. And she just... Spent all the spare cash she had getting picture after picture after picture of herself taken. Jumps in the bus, goes down. Looked for her daughter for about a week or so, couldn't find her. Went to all the sort of cheap places where you might go, um, many of them seedy. And then eventually, um, despairing, she realised she had to go home because she'd run out of money and had to get back. Um, but before she left, she went and stuck pictures of herself in um, uh, phone booths, uh, community notice boards, uh, hotels, a lot of places in the, the you know, sort of seedier parts of town where prostitution, things like that would happen. And you can end up doing desperate things when you're hungry. And Christina had begun to get food by selling her body and she was just in despair. Now, some weeks after her mother had gone home, she came down from earning her meal down the steps in this uh, hotel place and then she, there was a picture of her mother that she said just burned its way into her eyes and she just instinctively reached across, picked a picture of her mother up and then while she was handling she saw there was writing on the back and her mother had written this message on the back of every single picture of herself. And it said, whatever you've done, whatever you, whatever you have become, it does not matter, please come home. See, that's what, this is, this, that's what God is saying, isn't it? Whatever you have done... Whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. Now that's what Jesus is saying God is like. He's like that mother. He's like this father, only better. Nobody loves like this. Nobody loves you like he loves you. He doesn't have any illusions about how perfect you are. Many of us look okay on the outside, but we know that inside there are all sorts of troubling habits, etc. God is no, he's no fool. He's well aware uh, of how dark you can be. In fact, he is aware that you're worse than you think you are. But he loves you. We know that by the cross, where he pays for you, as we've sung, and we know it from the teaching and the life of Jesus. Nobody loves you like he loves you. I love that phrase, and I first heard it... Uh, I, Served at a church, St Barnabas Broadway, which we burnt down um, some years ago. No more indoor barbecues. But um, some naughty kids burnt it down because they were bored, I think. Anyhow, it was a very nice fire. But all sorts of people contacted us when the building went down. And one lady rang us from, lived down near Cooma. And she was a pensioner, but she said she wanted to help in the rebuild. And she said, until the building is rebuilt, I'm going to send a tiny part of her pension every fortnight. And the secretary said, "Why?" Well, the you know, office secretary said, "Why? You know, how come?" I said, "Well, that church changed my life." And um, the secretary said, "Oh, when when were you coming to church?" I said, "I've never been in the church." Oh, tell us what happened. And she said, "It was World War II. Her mum and dad were already dead. She had one brother. He was in Singapore when the Japanese captured it, and he'd gone off, and she didn't know if he was dead or alive." And she was on her own, utterly bereft. And she was going down a tram down Broadway 
And there was this sign, because the church has had signs since the 1930s at the front, uh, speaking to the city, and there was these words, nobody loves you like he loves you. And she said she turned to God and said that really saved her life, she said at that point, when she was utterly bereft. And, uh, and that's true. That what Jesus is saying here is that lost people really matter to God, dodgy people, whether you're self-righteous, which is ugly, or just self-centered and addicted to some sort of sin, he continues to love you. This is a revolutionary story. There is no story like this in the world of religions. Nothing. In fact, most religions find this offensive, right? Because what it says is, you're all crap, right? You may be crap in a different way to me, but it, it, in a real sense, God, it doesn't matter. You come home, perhaps for the first time, or perhaps for the hundred thousandth time, he welcomes you. He is quick to forgive and then forgets. There is a Buddhist story, as I mentioned. The Buddhist story goes like this. Um, Father-son thing, similar thing. The, the son uh, takes stuff and nicks off, comes back in desperation. And if you know anything about Buddhism or the laws of karma, you'll know what happens next. He is sent into the fields to work to pay off his karma. And the story finishes with the boy in the fields working indefinitely. That is how Hinduism and Buddhism work. You simply must pay. The law of karma is an iron just law. And Jesus is saying, rubbish. Right? That's nonsense. Karma does not have the last word. In the most serious area of eternity, you do not reap what you sow. In many areas of life, you can have been forgiven and you'll still go to prison because you've done crimes, etc. There'll be things here that, that will have damaged us. But in, in the most crucial area, this revolutionary story, and there's simply nothing like it. I'm sure you will have heard from people um, where they talk about the, the, do, the do and the done religion. All the religions of the world, without exception, I can say it more confidently than I used to say it because I've done plenty of study and debate with people from various faiths. All the religions of the world are do religions. The guru, the enlightened man, the prophet comes and gives you a list of instructions, completely different to what the other gurus and that give you to do, um, normally to do with some level of fasting and travel and stuff like that, and you've got to do them. And if you do them well enough, you're, you might get a, a better reincarnation, or there might be a dash of mercy and you might even get to heaven. Now, Christianity, of course, doesn't believe that for a second, but people think we do, don't they? And every perversion of Christianity, and some of them are quite formal, will make it in the end. It is a question of you doing stuff. But it's actually, as you know, Christianity is, is it's all about what God has done, what Jesus has done for you. And it's, it, a gift is offered to you. Why it's so hard is two reasons. One is it's just not the way humans think. Every human-made man religion is a do thing. List of instructions, do it, do it well enough and you might be okay. Christianity says, no, 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 you're, you, you're so sick, you're so desperately in need, you need him to do something for you and it's been done in the cross and it's a gift. It's exotic. In fact, the Bible speaks about it. It uses that word in 1 John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has from us. That word, what manner, of, is the word exotic. It comes from another place. It's not sort of grown of earth. Um, and we need to help our friends see that politely and, and gently, that this is quite a different thing. The problem with it is, though, it really makes it hard on our pride. 
See, if, you, if you're a devout Buddhist, you've got reason to be proud. You might, I'm not saying you strut around like that, but because if you have a better reincarnation, it's because you've worked hard. You have you know, dealt with your longings and your urges and your need to have things, etc., etc. The foolishness of my mates, one of which I'm seeing this afternoon, you know, pretending that they're into Buddhism. I remember one of my friends, look, I'm more a Buddhist than you blokes. I at least believe I shouldn't covet. You spend your whole life, oh, more, 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 more. This, this, you know, new woman, new food, new, new cigars, new, new, new this and everything. The whole thing is craving, right? Buddhists, yes, if. But this, this is saying you have to give up. And this completely transforms you and fills you with an energy that enables you to love and to serve both God and others on the basis that we've received this ridiculously expensive gift. All right. Uh, let me just see where I should finish. I think I should finish about now. Uh, that would be good. So this is about grace, isn't it? It's about undeserved love. It's the heart and soul of everything. And you may have been, you know, you may have been, we need to hear it again and again and again and again and again because it's, we keep getting glimpses of ourselves and it's not as pretty as it should be. But God is saying, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, doesn't matter. My son has died. Come home and enjoy his love. Honour him by trusting him. Let me pray. Father in heaven, your ways are not our ways. Uh, your ways are exotic and weird and wonderful. We're so glad that your son hasn't given us a list of instructions to um, build ourselves a righteous life, but we receive this wonderful gift. Father, thank you that you're even better than that father in the story, uh, that your love is steadfast, your forgiveness is instant, your grace is amazing. We thank you that where sin abounds, your grace superabounds. Please, Father, by your Holy Spirit's work in each of our hearts, help us to really embrace and dare to believe that you have loved and accepted us and set us free in your love. We pray for this, for the honour of your Son. Amen.